Hey everybody, welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. This is Ryan Parker. And we come together to discuss theology and television. Boy, the the Handmaid's Tale. First of all, Ryan, I know you were uh, busy in M-I-S-S-I-I-P-P-I last or whatever. I think you just tried to spell IPA and just went really wrong. What do you think of the? What do you think of uh, the? Boy, I thought it was with Hank. Hank, I thought it was a. It was a great conversation. I wish I could have been a part of it. I really appreciate his opinions and insight into just TV at large, um, and then his take on on Handmaid's Tale. I'm always thankful, you know, when when kind of legit critics when, when we share opinions and his his opinion of both. Elizabeth Moss's work and the kind of religious tone or maybe the religious shortcomings of the series it was interesting to hear him reflect on those. So I hope that we can have him back on. Yeah, he, he sounded amenable to it. He was, uh, he's a funny guy too. He, he is a great guy. He is a great guy. And obviously, yeah, my, my wife, Courtney has worked with him on, on one of his books, doing shooting the cover photos and some interior photos and stuff. And, yeah, he's a really good guy. She really loves him and thinks he's just so sweet. And then, thanks you know, for the connection, Courtney. Yeah, and then to hear kind of the insider thing about how he watches TV, you know, and um, I love the, that idea, that notion of like uh, dividing between kind of work TV and 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 like enjoyment TV, you know, where mm-hmm. it's like kind of what I'm going to watch at the office versus what I'm going to watch at home. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, it was real fun to have him on. And now we're turning the cor- corner into the next uh, episode of uh, The Handmaid's Tale. And one of the things that he said, now you and I have both admitted on this, that, you know, on, on the podcast here, that we have not read the novel Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. He not only has read it, as he said on the podcast, like it's it's a he's like a champion of that. Yeah, book. like it's a it's a favorite of his, and he got turned on to it in college. And last episode in this episode, according to Hank, you know these are the episodes where the show is starting to veer away from the novel because, as you and I have talked about before, and if, as we've seen a little bit behind the scenes, it, being involved with the path. You know, like making a TV show is is a different kind of beast than a novel. And obviously, you know, they're going to have to veer away from the novel to make this show into more than one season. You know, we get two things that I think are interesting this week. And maybe you can run down the episode for us a little bit. But one is backstory on Nick. And two is we start to get a little bit more of the backstory of how Gilead came to be the, the, the country of Gilead. Yeah, I think this is, I'm so anxious. I was so excited to talk to you about this because it's, I think one of the most, one of my favorite episodes so far, but it's also the one that made me the most uncomfortable. Two things. Well, the backstory, as you've talked about, the flashback is really two stories in one. We get a bit about Nick and, his life as society began to break down and then quote unquote rebuild. Mm -hmm. So he's this kind of down on his luck guy. He can't find a job, but he's also got this kind of dysfunctional family that he feels compelled to take care of. 
Um, and in that process, he gets roped into this group called the Sons of Jacob. And we can come back to that in a moment. But they are the early architects of Gilead, right, of what becomes this kind of new society. And we hear them talk about how to talk about branding uh, their mm-hmm. their vision. They talk about uh, how to sell, so to speak, this idea of the handmaids to the wives, which was fascinating. Yeah. And so that's a little bit of that backstory. And then in in the current, in the modern setting, or in the present day, Commander Fred decides to take Alfred out for the night. Mrs. Waterford is away, and the Fred wants to play. Yeah. So he he dresses up Alfred. He gives her makeup and this like really kind of like skimpy dress and some high heels. And then they roll out with Nick. Uh, not too happy. Nick is driving them basically out of kind of, I don't know, is it the like DMZ? <laughs> it's like this, this barrier. Yeah. I mean, they go through a couple checkpoints and they, to go into Boston, to go into a brothel. And, and it, here's something that occurred to me that I thought was interesting is my dad, he's retired now, but he owned, uh, co-owned a company that, did a lot of work with military around the world. Um, and he taught, told me one time about his salesman in the Middle East, and they did a lot of business like with Saudi Arabia. And I'm like, oh, what's, you know, what's that like for this guy? He goes, well, there's, there's this, he will go in to meet with a Saudi prince, and there's this ante room and it's very formal, and there are no women allowed, and any women you would possibly see are veiled and things like that. And it's very strict, a strict Islamic setting. And then once you get in their good graces, they basically take you into the back room where it's like Jack Daniels, prostitutes, loud music, everything that, that conservative Islam you know, abjures, but they behind the doors they do it, right? So in the show, in the Handmaid's Tale, that's the exact situation, and it's a very um, kind of kinky sex club, very eyes wide shut kind yeah. of feel yeah. to it, and it's basically. And Fred says, you know, this is where the leadership goes. This is where visiting dignitaries and business people go. And basically, whatever you want, you can have, right? And while they're there, very early in the evening, Alfred sees Moira. And the two of them just kind of briefly fall apart, which is I thought was a very effective scene. And they later in the night, Alfred learns a bit more about what ha- what's happened to Moira after she left on the train to Boston. And she re- reveals a bit more. You know, she was captured momentarily, but... Uh, then she is enlisted into – we are introduced to this new class of women called Jezebels, right, which yeah. are essentially you know, women for hire, not just for sex, though. If you, you know, Fred, Captain Fred makes the statement, you know, if you just want to talk, we have uh, philosophers and sociologists and professors, <laughs> right? But they're all – they're Basically, <laughs> they're all nonconformists, right? Well, and they're all now prostitutes, we find out. I mean – well, we can, you can get into that, but but Offred asks, interestingly, why? What is this place like? Why? Basically, why do you let this happen? And Commander Fred says, "Well, 
we're all human. So in other words, in Gilead, even in Gilead, they, have, they realize human beings have urges that we cannot here, totally here erase. Here you go, Tony. That's a lame-ass justification for what they're is. doing. It's the so let me, let me, let's, let's uh, set the stage here for this conversation. And we can, go one, we can start in one of two places. We can either talk about this world of this the sex club, so yeah. to speak, or we'll start with the architects. So I'm inclined to start with the sex world and then work backwards. Because I think what we see in uh, this hotel room, this brothel, is the truth that exposes the lie of Gilead, mm-hmm. which is Gilead is this more uh, – in the creators, the architects, the generals, in their eyes and in their wives' view, this is a moral vision for a world gone wrong, and this is the way to set it right. Yep. Now, we can talk about – uh, a contemporary real world parallel. You know, you and I were just texting about the LA review of the LA Times review of the Benedict option. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some similarities here. But what we see in Gilead is that we, we see it for what it is, which is not, it is not about morality. It is about power and control and preserving that control at all costs. Yeah. And this is their outlet. Right. This brothel. Well, first off, it might be an outlet. But second, it is just all about further dominance of these women and that culture. And so, you know, I was just in Mississippi and some friends and I were uh, having a beer and we were talking about the business, the craft beer business in Mississippi, which Mm -hmm. is not which is growing and is probably about to grow a lot faster because a couple of rules have changed. But for the longest time, uh, alcohol laws in Mississippi were rather archaic, right? Uh, ABV had to be really low. If you brewed beer, you couldn't sell your own beer, which how messed up is that in capitalism? (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But all the state legislatures who kept these these laws in place are all notorious. No, not all. A lot of them are notorious drunks, right? Yeah. But it's who's, what, what are you drinking? Whose booze are you drinking? Who's distributing that? And all these other things come into play. And I, I just think this episode did a great job of exposing Gilead for what it is. Nick is an asshole, but the male population, we are the worst. We are the – holy shit, we are the absolute worst. Well, that's definitely an undercurrent in the show and probably in the novel too, right? But but let me ask, instead of just like – I don't want us to just default to the base, like let's blame this on the guys. It's the the, the problem with the penis. Like, what is it about? Cons- yeah, but there's no alternative narrative that there. It, but if to not blame it on that, you have to give me something else to blame it well, on. Well, what right I'm going to ask you see. is, what is it about? And, and this is whether it's the Benedict option, right, or whether it's um, the the Puritans getting on the Mayflower and escaping England, or whether it's about uh, what's that M Night Shyamalan movie, the the Village. You know, it's yeah. Good call. This is a common trope. You don't like where modern society is going, and so you either colonialize or you retreat. And or or in the in the case of Gilead, 
you know, in, in, in the case of the village or in the case of the English separatists or in, in the case of, the, uh, you know, Amish, it's a retreatism. It's always a retreatism. Let's, we're going to retreat and we're going to build a community of purity. Which of Some course, of us would say regress. Which, which of course never works. It never, ever works, right? Something always goes wrong. Or you want the antibiotics, so you send the kid out of the, the village to go find the antibiotics or whatever the kid. Or, or you have, uh, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne writing about the Scarlet Letter. You know, you end up shaming people and, and reducing, dehumanizing them, basically. Even even though they you know for their animalistic instincts or whatever, in we as we see in the um, Hester Prynne and the Scarlet Letter, and there's obvious parallels to this. But what happened in Gilead is they didn't they colonialized the entire country. Like they did not retreat; they took over. So it's a lot more like um, a, a jihadi radical Islamic state taking over a Middle Eastern country and installing their own um, political and military leaders. That's kind of what's happened in Gilead. But the hypocrisy of it, as we see, and it's kind of substantiated in my dad's anecdote about his Middle Eastern salesman, you know, is that still they have to have a release valve, and you might say for male sexuality, right? But Moira gets a choice, too. And she could have been sent off to the colonies, and maybe or she not. could have been, or or she could have been in this in this brothel where she would be with sociologists and philosophers. And and now she says it's you know it you get to be here a while before your pussy wears out, and God only knows if she's going to go to you know be hanged on the wall after that but at least what she chose in, instead of going to the colonies she chose to at least spend this time yes of, of course she's basically a slave like a sex slave but she also chose to be around other women who at least have just a, the tiniest sliver of of agency right uh, and at least that's how the command that's the story the commander is telling himself Mo, uh, I want I wonder if that's not a release. If this club is not a release valve, if it is just a manifestation of who these people really are, they do not believe. They do not truly believe the vision that they have created. They do not believe the world in which they now live because of this club. Okay, okay, but here's Ryan. Let's go back to earlier in the episode because I, I agree with you, but I think there's a really interesting character study from the early in the episode to late. They're early in the episode. Nick has tried to find a job. He found a job as a driver. Okay, he gets he gets recruited into the Sons of Jacob, and he's basically a, a, a limo driver. He's got three guys in the back of his limo. We have three very different perspectives on being a son of Jacob. One is our commander Fred, who basically says. We need to figure out a way to market this thing. Like, what are the optics, right? And then you've got these two other guys. One's kind of a chubbier fellow who's kind of swearing and is like, um, let's do this and who cares about the women, blah, blah, blah. And then you've got the, the, the true believer. This is what I'm saying. You say, there are true believers. This is what we know. 
And the true believer is the guy who meets Nick at the employment agency, who recruits him in to the Sons of Jacob, who then um, is very straight-laced in the car and is obviously uncomfortable by the other guy cursing and even uncomfortable by Fred talking about mar- how are we going to market this. This guy's a true believer. And then true, li- believers, true believers don't give a shit about marketing or branding. Exactly. So at the end, what do we see later? First of all, that guy, the true believer, he is not in the brothel. We do not run across him in there. Okay? And secondly, we do see another flashback where Nick, who's now an I, is, finds the other guy, the foul mouth guy from the limo, and he basically gives him up, and this guy is getting dragged into you know, headquarters because he was sleeping with a couple different handmaids or something like this. So my point is, I think they're trying to show us Commander Fred may not be a true believer and all these other guys who are in the brothel aren't true believers, but there are true believers out there and we just saw one glimpse of one. So, Sure, I mean, but but I think what's far more common and maybe that's not fair to say, far more common but i think religious institutions are rarely if ever expressions of true belief okay because they have to navigate all these other things Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. branding and how do we get people in the door and finances i mean i've always i kind of joke but like if you're a true follower of jesus you're going to be living on the street or shot dead not yeah ensconced in comfort at a big mega church somewhere. And yet religious institutions and the people within them always play a game of self-deception in which they convince themselves that they are doing exactly what the religion calls them to do. Even, even though they don't live up to those standards, they convince themselves that they are. You're saying this is self-deception. And I'm saying that Commander Fred is not cynical. This is what I'm saying. You could be a cynical whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't think he's you don't think he's cynical? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think, think he's, he's cynical because he says to because he says to Alfred, and we should probably call her June out of respect to her, because that's what she wants to be called by Nick, by her real name, June. Because she because he says to her, Look, we're all human. So maybe he's a tiny bit cynical, but he's not cynical like, hey, honey, we all know this whole Gilead thing is a complete farce in order to make, make, line our pockets and make us more rich. Like, I think the people who are working for Trump and who are going on like CNN to defend him, I think they are cynical SOBs. I think that Kellyanne Conway is totally cynical. She is in it for herself and she realizes Trump is an idiot who's in over his head. I don't think the same about Commander Fred. Um, I don't know. I, I might disagree with you on that one. We could agree to disagree. Okay. <laughs> I just I don't I don't know why I don't see where. Um, what what is the mark of his authenticity? I think it was I think it was blown away in this episode. Really. I mean, that's just my take. I don't know where where else to go um, with that. I think had he not, you know, I think maybe the second I think the second he invited her to play Scrabble that destroyed his 
destroyed his kind of moral credibility. Hmm. Because, he's he, to, because he just wants to get laid. That or he's not, he doesn't believe that the ceremony is enough. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because a true believer would just do that once a month and be like, you know, under his eye. If it, if yeah. it made the Lord open, it's not up to us. It's not up whether I sweet talk her, we play Scrabble, or I apply her with alcohol. Like, it's going to happen. Yeah, right? yeah, because yeah. Because I have faith right. in God to make it happen. Right, right. What do you take, what do you make of Nick's backstory then? I mean, to switch topics a little bit, because Nick isn't, you start to develop some compassion for Nick. He's a confusing figure because on the one hand, he's an I. On the other hand, he's sleeping with a handmaid. <laughs> so, you know, he's obviously not uh, committed to the cause either. He saw a way out of a pretty wretched life that he had. Yeah, I think Nick's a survivor. I don't see him as this. I think he's an asshole. I think he's... Um, I don't know that he cares for June. I think his behavior. Look, June is also going to Nick in the middle of the night. And she says at the beginning, I thought this was an interesting way to open the episode is that she's going to Nick, not for any other reason that it feels than that. It feels good. Right. And them sleeping together. So, I guess that's true, but I do start. I, I think in this episode, you start to see her actually having a little bit of affection toward Nick. Am I wrong about that? Did you not sense that? A little bit. I like think it, it comes, it's more I think for it comes her than just the a end. carnal act. Yeah, sure. I think that I think the ending betrays any sort of kind of um, any sense that she's just in it for the physical pleasure. I mean, I think the ending betrays that because they're in the kitchen and. He's like, we can't keep doing this. And she feels connected to him. and, and She feels connected. Out. She also feels betrayed. And I feel like, I don't know, I'm, I need to think some more about Nick's actions here at the end because my gut reaction was, what an asshole. And the second, you know, who knows what happens in this next episode, but I'm sitting here, is there a way in which Nick could save her? Like, Nick is... Nick says, oh, we can't do this anymore because he wants to protect her. He doesn't want her to be hung on the wall. Yeah. Well, Nick, yeah. could, Nick could sweep her away in the middle of the night. You know, Nick could hide her in the car and run an errand, and they'd be gone. So I think, I think Nick, Nick, but Nick's also living in fear, right? Yeah, I, I guess don't know. he's I, living in fear. He find, doesn't seem I don't, fearful. But. I don't find Nick to be all that compelling as a character. Hmm. I feel like he's, um, and I don't know if it's just his character's role in that world but he hasn't done anything for me that kind of like i give a shit either way about his his role in this narrative other than the fact that he could help and doesn't um or he could not make matters worse by not acting like having his feelings hurt because offred had to go with commander fred yeah you know what what did he think she was gonna do yeah that's what she says to him she's like this is not my i had no choice and also, by the way, he's, you know, he's doing some stuff on the side with one of the Marthas in the, at the brothel, right? And there's clear that they have sexual past together because yes, that's right. she goes to make a move uh, on him, he, he kind of pushes her away. Yeah. A James Beard nominated chef, by the way. <laughs> For her pesto. I was like, How funny was that? that's the <laughs> least believable thing yet in this show. This is, 
can I make you that pesto that got me a James Beard Award? You don't get a James Beard Award for making for pesto. pesto, honey. Yeah, it's something I could make. No way. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe actually Western civilization had degraded to the point that they were giving out James Beard Awards for pesto. <laughs> okay, let's talk about – I think there are two other things to kind of touch on as we begin to wind this down. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that in the opening of the episode – Commander Fred is giving June all this, all these very feminine things, or at least what he deems feminine and attractive, which is the dress and the makeup and the shoes. Right? One wonders, looking at the flashbacks, June probably not would not have picked those for herself, right? And then at the end of the episode, Mrs. Waterford gives her a gift that I think mirrors in a way, and there's a mirror in the, in the gift. Yeah. What commander Fred is doing. They both have idealized versions of who June should be. And at least when he can get away with it. And when it's their night alone out on the town, Mm -hmm. Fred has this very glamorous, um, some might say kind of, I don't want to. I don't want to. How do I say this? Uh, a, he has a very sexualized vision of of who she is and what she should be. Yes. Right, that he can't. As long as she's in these dour clothes, he can't really get it up and get her pregnant. But the second she looks more appealing to him, then that that changes his situation. He doesn't really care about her because she has to conform to some vision. And then, and like, then second, then, and then second, with the yeah. gift at the end, you know, Mrs. Waterford views her as this child. Well, but, then, it, but it, let's go or back to the prisoner. commander too. There's this moment, a very brief scene where they go up to a hotel room at, at the brothel, and like he's drunk and and talk basically talking about what a bad day he had at the office, kind of. Yeah. You know, like suddenly now he's treating her like they're an old married couple. You know. Yeah, and you know what? It, it, we keep coming back to this a little bit, and we should probably put a link to the to the article in on the podcast. We keep talking about this review of the Benedict Option, and one of the the critic who the professor of religion who wrote about this book and this mindset, not just of we talked about earlier about how to you know what religious organizations do, which is like they retreat or whatever, but in that retreat there is this intense act of othering, right? And of demonizing the other or idealizing the other. And I think you see that in both actions on part of Fred and Mrs. Waterford is that June can't be June. To preserve their power, she has to be either this little girl, this ballerina in a box, or this hot-looking date, right? Who's just there for, like, physical pleasure. Yeah, I... I th- I guess I still don't quite buy that part. But what you, but I will wait say by that, what by what part? I just I don't buy that that the commander is. I do buy that the commander's like if I'm going to impregnate this girl, I have to find her attractive and have some kind of connection with her. But what I don't really buy is like I'm going to gussy her up, take her out to a brothel and sleep with her even though she's not ovulating right now. You know, I don't quite, I don't quite 
get that part unless for him it ends up being like a power thing. Like he almost is like a Trumpian character who he just needs to have every woman love him all the time, you know, and he's... Oh, I think he's that 100% and you don't. And he won't be satisfied unless every woman in his orbit. Now, here's what's interesting. We also see see the the hanging, the, the suicide of his last handmaid and... As her body is being taken out, Mrs. Waterford says to him, like, what did you expect would happen? And what we don't know is this, and this is, I thought, one of the more fascinating parts of this episode. Is she like, what did you expect would happen when you treated your handmaid so crappily? Or did she mean, what did you expect would happen when you set up this whole Gilead system? Which do you think it meant? I think it meant both. Huh. Yeah, I think it meant both. Not to take the easy way out, but I do. I think it meant it referred to both. But I, I tell you, I don't think. I think all these guys, for the most part that we've seen, all of these guys make my stomach turn because they are Trump. I mean, the scene of Fred dressing June was repulsive. The way he like touched her and fixing her hair and dolling her up and he smelled her hair and then they get to the hotel room and yeah, I you know, of course it's all rape and all that stuff, but it's even, and I, I don't mean that to sound dismissive, but we've talked about that before, but just the despicable nature of him as a person. So again, I think that's just more reason why I yeah. don't buy yeah. him as this authentic believer, so to speak. Yeah. 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 You do. You, I think you do have to, convince yourself i mean i have to i have to remind myself as a viewer every sexual encounter i'm like this is a rape this is a rape although i don't know that nick and june that june complicates that i mean and this is certainly in this episode she is she is there's part of me when i heard that opening soliloquy where she talks about doing it because it feel good, feels good, part of me was like, well, what's wrong with that? You know, this is this woman's one out. And she's expressing some agency in that moment, right? Nick is not forcing himself on her. And as far as I can recall in the episode, never did. Um, actually, Mrs. Waterford is to blame for their that's first right. connection. That's right. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So... I think another good episode, another interesting cliffhanger, because she pushes back against that. And that I think her resistance, and she talks about acts of resistance in this episode, but at the end of this one, she says, I will not be the girl in that box. I know, but yeah, that's true. That's and true. And it'll be interesting to see where it goes next week. Yeah, and Luke is still alive, and Moira's alive, so... Because it's feeling like, especially as we get to the end of this first season, and and whatever is going to be, because they call the next episode, we've seen the title of it, is Bridge. And is is this the last episode of the first season? We're not sure. But if it is, it's, you know, clearly referring to something in the episode, but also as a bridge to the second season. And it feels like she's going to have to do something big. Like, she's going to have to make a big move. She's done some small things, some little acts of resistance along the way, uh, rushing off to see Moira and talk to her while Fred was asleep, learning more about, you know, uh, Luke is alive. Yeah. But now it feels like she's got to do, she's got to take a big risk uh, in this next episode. Yeah. And she's also avoided joining the resistance. 
you know, when she's been invited into that, uh, she, she's she's rejected it. So, yeah, she's a little bit on the fence. I mean, she's not she's not a a, a, a kind of monolithically strong figure. I think she's confused and she has some and we have not well, she just has some questions she's self-preservation you know yeah and we have not seen her pine away for her daughter in several episodes now which you would think would be the one thing that would really keep her in the game so anyway it's it i thought it was good i really i personally like the nick backstory and i really every time i get even a little piece of information about how gilead came to be and kind of the, the- theological underpinnings of it I, I find that fascinating. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to Killer Serials. And check us out next week uh, as we wrap up The Handmaid's Tale. It's, it's been quite a, quite a series, and it's gotten quite a lot of buzz. Let's and do a shameless plug, to, plug too. Let's check out what if, – if you're able, check out the work over at Pop Theology at poptheology.com where you can find all the episodes of Killer Serials and a couple of articles about The Handmaid's Tale, so some more reading if you're really into the series. Richard Lindsay posted an interesting list of kind of theological implications of or reflections on it, so on the series. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you next week. I was asleep before. That's how we let it happen. When they slaughtered Congress, we didn't wake up. When they blamed terrorists and suspended the Constitution, we didn't wake up then either. Now I'm awake. My name is Alfred. I had another name. Ladies, I have to let you go. It's the law now. They needed to do it this way. All the bank accounts and the jobs all at the same time. You imagine the airports otherwise? Run, run, run! You girls will serve the leaders and their barren wives. You will bear children for them. There's an eye in your house. We'll send you to the colonies. You'll be cleaning up toxic waste and then you'll die. of Gilead and of what we have achieved. We only wanted to make the world better. Better? Better never means better for everyone. I want to keep on living for her. Remember your scripture. Blessed are the meek. And blessed are those who suffer for the cause of righteousness. Righteousness.